About Race is sponsored by MailChimp. More than 7 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters, including us. More at MailChimp.com. MailChimp. Send better email. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello, and welcome to our national conversation about conversations about race, the bi-weekly multiracial podcast where we discuss the ways we can't talk, don't talk, would rather not talk, but intermittently, fitfully, embarrassingly do talk about culture, identity, politics, power, and privilege in our pre, post, yet still very racial America. You could say all that, or you could just call the show about race. I'm Raquel Cepeda, author of Bird of Paradise, How I Became Latina. And joining me here in the Panoply Studios in New York City are my co-hosts, Baratunde Thurston, author of How to Be Black. What up, Baratunde? What up? And Tanner Colby, author of Some of My Best Friends Are Black, The Strange Story of Integration in America. Hello, Raquel. Shalom. Shalom. <laughs> okay. Today we'll discuss this week's cover story from New York Magazine, Can Racism Be Stopped in the Third Grade? A program at the prestigious Fieldston Lower School has asked parents to categorize their elementary school-aged children by race so they can be sorted out into racial affinity groups for classroom discussions. Some parents are thrilled. Other parents weren't feeling it. Next up, we'll talk about Boston University professor Saida Grundy. The African-American scholar talked about race on Twitter. White conservative students got mad. She got smacked down. Can black and brown scholars and public intellectuals of color be honest about race in digital spaces? Or will the real world backlash shut them down? And finally, if you've been listening to our podcast, you know we've been waiting to discuss ABC's incredible show, American Crime. The season finale was last week, and we'll have our thoughts. There will be spoilers. We'll wrap things up with our tips and recommendations, something we like to call, yo, check this out. And don't forget to check out our B-side. Here's how it works. We start the conversation here. After the episode drops, we collect your feedback on email and social media. Then we meet back here and continue the conversation with your ideas and opinions added into the mix. You can find us on Twitter and Facebook at Show About Race or email us directly at showaboutrace.com. Send us your thoughts, tweets, and comments on today's topics. The B-side for our last show, where we discussed the fallout from Freddie Gray's murder in the custody of the Baltimore Police Department, is available now. Also, one more thing. If you like this show, subscribe in iTunes and leave us a rating, hopefully a good rating. It's easy and it's free, and it makes our corporate overlords slap happy, which will keep About Race coming to you. So, what's up, Baratunde? What's up, what's up, Raquel? What's new, bro? Uh, what's new for me is I'm about to undergo a summer of body modifications. Uh, I am getting... Facelift? That sounds awesome. <laughs> does, butt lift. Uh, when, uh, but definitely booty lift. Uh, it's a booty lift when I get it done. Uh, I am getting eye surgery. By the time people listen to this, I will be like either under the laser or within 48 hours of the laser, depending on when people actually play on their devices. I'm getting corrective vision surgery called PRK, which is related to LASIK. But it's more intense recovery period, which is to say more painful recovery period with longer lasting results. And just based on my prescription, that is the better solution for me. So why did you decide to do that? I mean, you look great in those glasses. Oh, I love my glasses. I probably yeah, want to keep like these them. glasses. Yeah. I just pop some clear ones in. This, this is like a this part of cool. my face framing. I have an astigmatism that's really intense. And glass alone can't fully correct it. Whereas surgery can get much closer. So my vision's not twenty twenty. Even with these glasses, things are still a little off. So I've never really seen the world. Uh, wow. So there's that. And then also being very active. I like to bike. 
I like to surf. Uh, there are certain experiences I've never experienced with full vision. So. Wow. Mm. That seems very disorienting. It'll I can't help me, imagine. It'll also um, help me see racism better. Uh, <laughs> I'm planning on that. Are you ready to see Tanner's face? Uh, yeah. I'm ready. Yeah, for the first time. I'm ready. You know, I'm, white, I'm white bear Sunday. <laughs> I'm white, what? You're, don't tell me that, Tanner. <laughs> don't tell me you're white. That's going to just going to change things between us. So that's what's up with me. <laughs> what up with you? Well, speaking of me being white, a book that I just finished ghostwriting last year just went out for blurbs and my book got an awesome yeah blurb from Bobby Seal founding chairman of the Black, Black Panther, Panther Party Bobby Seal isn't he have like Bobby Seal barbecue sauce <laughs> let's fact check that Cody cuz the author of the book is is black and yeah. I'm the ghostwriter and I'm white and I just love that I was able to ventriloquize would that be yeah, the word yeah. uh, a book from the author's point of view that even Bobby Seal would like a Black Panther endorse. cosign a Black Panther cosign yeah. my ghostwriting of the book. So that was pretty cool. Congratulations. Thank man. you. Okay, just for the record, I was right. Wow. Bobby Seal's barbecue. Yeah, that, what is it called, Cody? Barbecue with Bobby Seal and a documentary DVD. Barbecue with Bobby wow, Seal and see? a documentary Thank DVD. You. How yeah. crazy is that? Okay. Uh, and what's up with you, Raquel? Well, last time you guys saw me, I went to Vermont and had a fight. Yeah. And I won that one. (laughs) (laughs) Um, It was very difficult for me that time because the woman had two small children and it kind of took me out of my game. And my Did you feel bad for her? I felt felt so bad, actually, (laughs) that I became the butt of the joke every single day. Like, they're like, you basically walked her to her corner. Even the ref looked at me like, just hit her one more time. She doesn't want to be here. But I heard her son going, you hit hard. And then I felt so bad that I actually let her breathe. So my coach punished me by not allowing me to sit through any of the rounds. I think she hired those kids to put them in the audience as a no, plan. No, I throw feel you. so bad. And I think, no. It's a good plan. And then yeah. her dad, like, walked over and, like, thanked me and then, like, shook my hand. And I felt so bad because she was, like, holding her mouth because I think her tooth came loose. So you abused a mother is what I'm hearing. I'm a mom <laughs> yeah. and nobody ever cares. But I just, I don't know what it was. I think I'm becoming a little less racist and she was a white woman, so I felt and compassion. And she was white. Wait, you saved that for yeah, last? Yeah, she was. And oh I felt so much <laughs> compassion. And I felt like I wasn't doing anything for the racist by just pummeling her. Mm-hmm. So I want to thank Tanner for having that impact on me. Well, I'm, I'm glad I could help. <laughs> yes. Yeah, unbelievable. All right. All righty. <laughs> Speaking of Vermont. There's a great article about Filson Lore in New York Magazine you wanted to talk to us about, right? Which has nothing to do with Vermont. <laughs> but it is, no, they're both places. They're, they're, both, they're places. both places. They're, they're both, both places. Exist. And they have white people in them. Yes. So. Lots okay. and lots. <laughs> lots and lots. But fewer and fewer, yeah. interestingly. So this week, writer Lisa Miller wrote the cover story for New York Magazine, Can Racism Be Stopped in the Third Grade? It's about an early intervention program at the very elite, very liberal, very progressive Fieldston Lower School here in New York City in the Bronx. And the purpose of the program is to get kids talking seriously about issues of race and confronting it. And we're talking about third, fourth, and fifth graders here, very young. And the program is being run by a black woman, Mariama Richards, a self-described equity practitioner, racial facilitator. There's lots of these people being hired now at progressive schools, doing these sorts of programs, these discussions, and so forth. And none of that is very controversial. It's happening all the time. But what is causing controversy about this particular program is that at the beginning of the semesters, parents were contacted and asked to check a box designating their kids' racial identity so that these kids could then be sorted out into racially identified affinity groups for safe spaces for intra-racial discussion. And the Fieldston Lower School is about 50% white and Jewish, 20% black and Latino, 20% multiracial, and 10% Asian and or unidentified. 
So it's kind of a mixed bag to begin with, but the school made it mandatory that you check a box and join a group. You either had to check the black box or the Asian box or the white box. There was one multicultural box, and there was a not sure box, was sort of the opt-out default position. So most of the media attention so far has been focused on the discomfort of the white liberal parents who believe in colorblindness and Martin Luther King and post-racial America and this sort of thing and can't deal with the whole idea of categorizing their kids by race. And it's not surprising, of course, that white liberal media outlets are focusing on the hand-wringing of white liberal parents because we like to talk about ourselves. But what was interesting to me, more interesting, was the reaction of the minority parents and the mixed-race parents, two of them specifically. One is a couple. The father is half Irish and half Jewish. And his wife, Evelyn, is Colombian, and she has dark skin and black hair. And two of their children look white or whitish, and one is browner with his mother's black hair and almond eyes. And to them, quoting the article, making racial identity a multiple choice proposition diminishes who they really are. We're a mix, the father says. We're a lot of different things. The kids are Colombian. They're Jewish. They're Irish. They're from New York. They're American. They're mixed. And after the kids and the parents talked it over, they checked the not sure box. Not because they're not sure of who they are, but that was just the The only vote. This is the only vote you could cast to sort of say, I don't agree with even doing this. On the other side of the coin, there was a woman, Christina Melendez, who has a second grader at the class who's going to be going into the program next year. She identifies as ethnically Dominican and racially black. I understand, she says, that parents say, I don't want my kid to pick a box, but the boxes are already being picked for my daughter left and right. I'm a Latina black woman. I'm going to pick, and this empowers my kid to pick, and she's going to be perceived from that moment on, hopefully, as the person she wants to be. That's not limiting. That's not putting my kid in a box. That's empowering. And so what is fascinating to me about this is that as we move towards 2042, all the press coverage about 2042 is about how much it's going to suck for white people. Mm -hmm. White people, you better get ready. Black and brown people are coming. The country's going to change. Shit's going to get real. You're not going to be able to handle it. What is coming out in this article to me is that there's an identity crisis coming in 2042 for people of color as well, that in many ways, 2042 is going to be more difficult for you than it is for us because people of color... And people of multiracial backgrounds are going to be facing exactly these kinds of choices. And there's going to be a divide and it's going to be a lot of disagreement and a lot of struggle around deciding where you're going to be. But you know what? By then, there may not be any checkboxes. By then, we may take a page out of Brazil's book and just identify ourselves the way we see fit. But we haven't done that yet. We are still at the point now where we're trying to put people in boxes. So my question is, Raquel. Yeah. As you just explore in your book, you're your own genetic melting pot, and you embrace all aspects of your identity. You're a Dominican. Your husband is Haitian American. How you would? Uh, He's half Black American and half Haitian American. Right, and your kids are mixed. So where do you come down on checking the box? When I filled out the census, I checked every single box. Let's say, for example, through my father's side, his mitochondrial DNA was pre-Columbian Indigenous. Mm -hmm. So Indigenous people are Eurasian. So that makes me European and Asian and indigenous. I'm the personification of how the new world came to be in mm-hmm. a body, right? So I feel very comfortable with groups that are white, black American, you know, um, Latino. I feel comfortable across the board. I don't feel the identity crisis. Mm-hmm. However, I think you're going to ask me about my daughter, maybe? Yeah, okay. Yeah. She turned 18 in, in January. Okay. You know, she went to parochial and public schools. So... She grew up around a lot of different people. She grew up in a household where she was very, very proud of being black, of being Dominican, of being diasporic, of being all these other things. So does she check all the boxes? She checks too? all the boxes, but she's like, I'm black. And even in college now, you know, she goes to university in New York City. Mm-hmm. The black American girls don't accept her. Sometimes the white girls are like, wait a minute, 
well, you're not Latina because you don't have the accent. And then for Latina, sometimes she's not Latino enough. Right. Mm -hmm. But at the same time, she doesn't really care what people think because she's my daughter. And she's okay. very happy. She's yeah. very settled in who she is. But if you were sending your kid to that school, what room would they go to at, at 2 o'clock when they all split up? You they can't, would spend you time. You can't check every box. Well, they would spend time in, in the black America room, and they would spend time in the maybe in the Asian room. They would have to spend their time in, in three different rooms. They'd just have to do it. But that's but, not what the program is. Yeah, but we don't exist in the binary, so that's the problem with the program. That's the but, problem with the program. But didn't it offer a mixed-race room? It did offer a mixed race yeah. room, but the but the Asian kids in the, kid, the kids in the mixed race room aren't necessarily going to all come from the same experience. You're going to talk. No, you're going to have kids that's that, a, and that's a categorization problem. Like checking all the boxes to me sounds like mixed race is the closest hit to defining that. I obviously would just end up in the white box, and you know, and so would my kid. I have a friend who's Middle Eastern, and she's married to a, a white guy, and she yeah. has two kids who are both in elementary school. And her daughter is much darker and, and has encountered some questions about, you know, her skin and stuff you? like that. And her, her son, who's a couple years younger, could just be a white dude. And I called her. I was like, what would you do? Yeah. And she hadn't read the article. And mm-hmm. she was kind of totally just thrown by the question. I was like, I don't know. Yeah. And then she had like, think about it. And we like talked again like two hours later. And she was like, you know, I just don't like the idea of my child at, at seven, eight years old having to confront that. What I do with my daughter is these questions come up. People say things to her. She has experiences. And I use them to guide her in the process of deciding who she wants to be. Mm-hmm. And I really wouldn't like the idea of this program at coming along in third grade telling me to put my, even if it's to put them in the multicultural not sure box. Yeah. Do you think there's going to be antagonism yeah. between people of color who choose to stay in the box and people of color who say, eh, no box? There's already antagonism and confusion because people of color is not a lump group either. Right. And, you know, you feel this in this article. You know, the black parents, though at least the ones they sampled and based on my own experience, feel much more comfortable with this than parents of people from other nations. Right. You just described your own friend who's from the Middle East, which isn't an explicit racial category, doesn't have the same history of mm-hmm. defining the U.S. and the experience of a black person, the world telling them that they're black is faster. It's much quicker, sure. much earlier. A cop is going to stop you and suggest you pickpocketed something or stole from a store because of that racial identity, because of the fears associated with it. So the comfort that black people have with wearing race and the lack of choice that black people have had with wearing race is super different from a group that's immigrated from a nation where race is not the same kind of discussion or a generation that's much more culturally mixed because they've got a half this and a half that. And so I can definitely see some, like, are you with us or against us type of thing playing out where are we minority majority together mm-hmm. or if we just fragment it? And there's like, okay, you got the white people, we've got the like racialized people of color and the less racialized people of color who would rather move on, be successful, decide for themselves whatever they want to do, but not engage in this type of conversation because mm-hmm. they don't see the point of it. But, you know, when you're young, you you don't have a choice. Like, my daughter was talking about race from yeah. a very young age because she didn't have a choice. Right. Here's what I like about this. It cuts the parents out because parents are the problem. Parents are how we baggage. Parents are how we got here. Yeah. In a literal sense, we are the product of them. But we inherit these values. We inherit this stuff. And in some ways, to break a cycle, you have to test the bonds of a child with a parent. And, you know, I've often thought maybe we just got kidnap kids ship them all to another place so they can't get the weird culture and the fears and the stereotype threats and expectations all confused Mm -hmm. the quote that really connected with me in the piece was these boxes are pre-checked and these expectations are out there because 
this is not a vacuum. Fieldston Lower is not a real place. Right. It's a tiny, well, and that's tiny why the, the tension slice. is between people who can't get out of the box, who yeah. feel they have no choice of being in the box, and the people who see the door and say, like, yeah, I, could, I could get out of this box. Yeah. And maybe I might like it outside of the box. There's a tension between those two groups. The program on net, I love it. The idea that you don't want to check a box, but you still have to talk about it, is important. Mm-hmm. Because so many people in the society do experience that. And if you are an employer or an elected official or a bus driver or a police officer, and you don't understand that this is how the world plays out for a significant number of people, even if it doesn't work that way for you in your house, because that's not how your parents thought or your cultural identity is so vast and broad that these boxes don't make sense, they make sense for a significant number, and they drive outcomes for a significant number. So if you are ignorant of that, and it's all academic to you, and you've never had an emotional connection to it, then you're missing out on the chance to like be a better person, even if you don't have to live in that box for the rest of your life. Now, when I got to know a little bit more about Mariama Richards... She is the woman who's designed this program. The woman who designed... Yes. Lower school. Yes. Yeah. So Mariama Richards said that as educators, it's not enough to, you know, during Black History Month or whenever, to like study books about black history or whatever. It's mm-hmm. not about human rights curriculum. It's about how you teach it and how you fuse what's going on in history with... Yeah your own experience. And sometimes that's where people are uncomfortable talking about their own experiences. Because even though a lot of those parents at Fieldston Lower are talking about, you know, we're liberal, we're PC, the truth of the matter is a lot of those kids, their world outside of school is very, very, very white. Mm-hmm. So it's serving them no purpose to become ethical human beings and contributors of society to just have their world be so controlled and so white and so non-diverse, as diverse as their schools are. We might have to do a whole episode just on 2042. Call it 2042? Yeah, and just like, what do, we think, is, what do we think is happening? Well, we could just rename the podcast 2042. Well, yeah, we could do that. Uh, that's what it is. But whenever one black person, let's use that example, makes a successful leap into position, Barack Obama's president, it provides a great pile of ammunition for the conservative white argument that, okay, we're done here. Right? Mm-hmm. You can pat yourself on the back. Look, you have a president now. And so I think 2042 gets here and that argument gets magnified by several orders of magnitude. You guys run the country like you outnumber us now. So what's your excuse now and how we respond to that as people of color in 2042 when it's no longer a simple like majority minority headcount math as part of the explanation of why things are the way they are. The rhetorical challenge of that and how we react to things can be play out very differently. Some people talk about cumulative history. Some people talk about wealth. Some people will be like, no, actually, we have no more excuses. Like, this is it's on us now. And how I can see factions forming around ownership of the solution and where the blame goes and like, okay, whose responsibility is it now? We can corner them. We can physically put them in Wyoming now at a certain point. And who who is it going to be? No, and, you can't. And, you can't really because we still have all the money. So no, but I'm not, I'm, not saying, camps. I'm not saying that that's... <laughs> The case, I'm saying the argument will play out like that, though, that there will be people who right. will see the Poor white people will feel that way. That, yeah. White people with money. Look, here, here, here's how I'm going to move out of America. No, he, no. That's the thing about whiteness, though. Whiteness is slippery and adaptive, and it can be whatever we want it to be. And if whiteness means opening the door and Baratunde and Raquel get to join the party, but we get to keep our money, okay, then that's who the establishment is now. Yeah. It doesn't matter to us. And one of the other things they want to do with this program is... Well, white people have to get in the box, too. Mm-hmm. You think you're not in a box, but you are in a box yeah. like the rest of us. And white people need to understand that they have a race also. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And I was thinking about that, and it's true, yes. Like, 
black and white and Hispanic are all quote unquote races, but it's kind of in the same way that electrons, neutrons, and protons are all subatomic particles. Yeah, they're all particles, but they have different properties. And they all function in different ways. Like blackness is the ultimate box, right? It's defined in this society as the box you can't get out of. Hispanic is such a big variegated box that it's almost not even a box. I mean, it's so huge. There's so many different groups put into that thing. And whiteness is so adaptive and slippery and takes on so many different identities. It's a shape-shifting thing. that That's not really a box either. And so that's why the census and even this program... The box itself is a false construct. Racial identity is not a series of boxes. It's a Venn diagram. When we come back to a point, especially on a show with race in the title, and we say race doesn't exist, which is essentially what saying there are no boxes okay. is. I didn't say there are no, there's no such thing as racial identity. I said it was a Venn diagram. It's not boxes. The lines aren't so, hard. So they have, overlap. So we choose sh- different shapes. So the kids fill out circles <laughs> instead of boxes. I just I don't know what the practical implication of the statement is. I think what Mariama Richards is doing but is the, a, But does but the your, box your, bother your own, you as much as it bothers Tanner? But your own kids the wouldn't fit it. My kids would fit in every box. In so, every box. My so kid, where do they go fluid. at 2 o'clock? They go in, at 2 o'clock, they'll go to the multiracial room. And maybe they'll just put themselves and they'll start visiting and peeking in other rooms. I think that the, the box is just the point of departure to get the conversation started. And I feel like it's a good, doing it in school and doing it that young, it's very healthy mm. because what Mariama Richards is trying to do is to change the way we look at each other in society. If you have to start at boxes to get somewhere, then as long as the parents are not involved and all that baggage is not there in the school waiting the conversation and the children down, let them have their safe spaces. I... I, I agree. I hear you on Venn diagram, and I'm not. I don't think that I'm disagreeing with you. I'm mm-hmm. mostly probing on how does the program change, or how does the work we need to do change if we shift the metaphor uh, and the paperwork involved from boxes to Venn diagrams. De- it's definitely true. How useful is it, and what's the practical implication? And of how much truth? more contentious is it going to be with each passing yeah. year? Yeah, I mean, and and on that note, multiracial expanse vastly just from interracial marriage and procreation immigration affects all that and that the balance of different types of latin and hispanic groups is going to shift that the map's going to look different and i think mm-hmm. one of the smarter things i saw in this whole response to the the new york magazine piece was the labels will change by 2042 mm-hmm. as well and to your point like whiteness will almost certainly be more inclusive whether we call it whiteness i don't think we'll call it whiteness is, by then. is another question and the answer is you know probably we'll call not. we'll call it verizon <laughs> we'll just rebrand the or name Apple we'll call it Apple we'll call it Apple you'll we'll give like, it a new you'll name you'll be iPhone right because that it represents class success and I'm gonna stop talking Move moving on, on. <laughs> speaking about school <laughs> so I wanna bring to the table a story of hate on Twitter which in, in the average day probably shouldn't be a story but there's a couple of twists going on in the majority of which has to do with black professors in liberal arts academia, particularly in sociology, FM studies, humanities classes, expressing themselves online and facing significant negative response due to that with pressure exerted on their universities for them expressing their thoughts. Uh, Leading example, Saida Grundy, uh, who's at Boston University on her personal Twitter account, uh, which was public and is no longer because of this controversy, posted an apology after saying things like this. Why is white America so reluctant to identify white college males as a problem population. And, quote, every MLK week, I commit myself to not spending a dime in white-owned businesses, and every year I find it nearly impossible. Now, in response to this, there was a sort of a BuzzFeed-like conservative publication on campus called So College, 
using the Boston accent, C-A-W-L-E-D-G-E, challenging the professor's statements and asking how is this supported and allowed by an institution. There are, of course, now competing petitions about Ms. Grundy, one saying, I stand with her, which has over 4,000 signatures, and talking about her freedom of speech rights and that she can't be racist uh, for calling out racism. The other petition with about 2,800 signatures, if we're keeping race count, saying that she is sexist and racist and has a radical agenda and a university of higher education should not support such high levels of bias. If she has a problem with white college males, how dare she purport to teach white college males at Boston University, which is heavily white and presumably significantly male. So she was a leading example of academics taking heat on social media and that kind of trickling back up to university presidents who urge them to apologize. Don't necessarily fire them, but there's some pressure. In the same category, you have people like Anthea Butler, who's often on MSNBC. She's at University of Pennsylvania, big gray afro, and she keeps a Tumblr, a public Tumblr of the negative letters, comments, Facebook and Twitter posts, which are over-the-top racists and very dismissive of her academic credentials. Uh, And you have the general category of what does it mean to be a black professor at a white institution. We've talked about being a student. To open it up, and there's some stuff about the president in there we can get to later, but I think the main beat is, is this a question of academic freedom to -hmm. you guys uh, where, you know, we have some kind of double standard for it. If a white professor talks about race, he gets smacked down. We support that. If a black professor talks about race, they get smacked down and we somewhat feel a need to defend it. And uh, did you have any experience yourself with being public intellectuals about race and experiencing such negativity that it somehow affected you more than the dismissive comment of a stranger who you don't take to heart. I'll start with Raquel. Well, I'm not a professor, so I can't even imagine what it's like to walk in their shoes and I don't want to be presumptuous. But it's really tricky to navigate that water when you're a professor. First of all, I'm surprised that there aren't more policies in place. About social media use professors. If you're going to be tenured or if it's even a discussion why aren't there more policies put in place? That really surprises me because it's such a blurry line. Well, that's the, the blur is on purpose in universities. that They have ultimate discretion. You just mm-hmm. got to please some mysterious gods and their mysterious standards. And that level of discretion is where the power and slash corruption in the whole university system lay. But I didn't want to you cut know, you off. No, 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 no. Yeah. No, but, you know, like um, when you're on social network, there's like this fake sense of intimacy. Yeah that makes people who've met you for five minutes feel like they can talk to you in any way or they know everything about you. So anytime I'd be funny or make a joke, I'd get called out, for example. Like, I thought it's not very progressive or feminist. Is, like, I want to make a joke. So, so you're not a professor, but you have, I assume, in some point in your life, worked in a white majority power structure mm-hmm. where you're rarer than that power structure yeah. and kind of depend on it. Like, they write your checks. And one of the things that popped out from this to me, and this is is always to both of you, but I think the idea that you're a professor in this institution talking smack about the people essentially who run it Mm -hmm. and getting paid by them, students mouthing off at a professor on campus doing sit-ins, et cetera, is one thing. Professors who are seeking to join and tenure track that institution Mm -hmm. going down that same path and getting smacked down from the outside on social media, that feels a little different to me, a different type of challenge. You talk about the navigation. That's a tough route. That is a tough route. If you guys were a professor, would you accept Facebook requests and have a public Twitter account? Or would you even be on Facebook? You know, I have a friend who's a pastor. 
He likes a beer or a glass of wine with dinner. He doesn't do it in public mm-hmm. because he's a pastor and he doesn't want certain people in his congregation might have a problem with it. Journalists don't go to political rallies. They don't give political donations, right? Because there's just certain things that are like, all right, I've chosen this profession. There are certain things I may or may not be able to yeah. do. And 15 years ago, here's the way I was thinking about it. Like, you have private spaces where you can yeah. sit alone in your house over the dinner table and rant and rave to your friends about white college males being assholes. Mm-hmm. No one has any right to persecute you for what you say there. Even if you're Donald Sterling, owner yeah. of the LA Clippers, and you think you're speaking privately, there should technically be no repercussions yeah. to what is your private thoughts in your on own home. On a phone call. Yeah. On a phone call. At the same time, if you're a public intellectual and you publish an op-ed or an academic paper or a book then you should not receive any intellectual censorship or blowback for that, right? Because you are speaking in your professional role and it's all about academic freedom. Social media is this weird space in between Mm -hmm. that people treat as a private place to rant and yet is public. And so what should the rules there be? You know, 15 years ago, this professor, the rant about college male students being, you know, assholes is something she would have done alone with her friends yeah, and then she might have and then she might have thought huh well I have an idea about that let me pitch a paper to this academic journal and refine my argument and say something intelligent in a place that no white conservative college student ever would have gone and yeah. read it and it would have only been read by peers and professionals and there would have been no problem here and so I don't think professors or anyone should censor themselves, but I do think you have to think about venue. And part of the reason I wanted to do this podcast with you guys is because I would sort of write these, you know, thousand word takes for Slate on, you know, the race issue of the day. And then there would be some like trolly, tweety, spammy feedback and and then it would go away. And it was never abusive or or hurtful to me, but it was I felt it was just unproductive and not the space to be doing it. And so I thought, well, let's do this podcast. Three of us can have a conversation. Podcasts are inherently a barrier to trolls because you have to listen, to, invest at least an hour to listen to us. When they have us. to launch their own podcast to respond right, to the and same respond to our <laughs> podcast. Yeah. And so it, I found this a more constructive space to have this dialogue. Yeah. And I kind of don't do it on Twitter. Twitter and Facebook, I just forward cat videos and say hi to my friends. And I just don't do this stuff mm. in that venue because I just don't find it the venue to do it. Twitter's going to be Twitter. Can you really stop Tweeter's it? Gonna tweet. I think they're in it. Tweeter's going to tweet. Is <laughs> that the tweet. title of this episode? Tweeter's going to tweet. tweet, boo. Yeah. You know, something you said, Tanner, I, I want to probe a little bit and like add to maybe disagree with that journalists don't go to political rallies, that we have some expectation of separation of your profession. But they didn't used to. I think they do now. No, exactly. And I, because we're shifting, like social media is not the cause. It's a reflection, I think, of how our lives are blurring, that the mm-hmm. personal and the professional are merging. Mm-hmm. Opinionated journalism, that's the type that's on the rise. But the slash activist is right. also what's really on the rise. It's the activist journalist, it's the activist professor, not just a public intellectual, which was like the dream team in Harvard AFAM studies back in the 90s when I was there. It's like, no, you're in the street. You're leading rallies. You're a professor, but you're also engaged in public policy, and you're going on cable news, and you're tweeting with Black Lives Matter. You're part of at least a virtual social justice movement. So they don't fit boxes anymore. Right? Right. They're Venn diagrams, to use your language from earlier. And how they, as professors, and how their institutions react to that. Like, you're used to responding to a box. As a professor, you do this and that. As a student, this is appropriate. But every teacher I know also has, certainly secondary and primary school teachers, no friending on the Facebook, private Twitter accounts for most of them, because mm-hmm. it's weird. And in, in its interpersonal nature, it's very strange to post a photo of you at a cocktail party with your 13-year-old students able to see that and comment on it and like it. And people do easily. it though. You'd be surprised. But it's a sign of the times, I think. Mm-hmm. Though, if I was a professor, I would not be accepting any of my students on Facebook 
and I would probably have a private Twitter account. But if your job as a professor, especially an activist professor who is working in humanities that wants to affect the world, mm-hmm. then you're, it's like not publishing. But, <laughs> right? but wait a minute, but I would publish. You know how yeah. I would publish? To me, Kiese Lehman yeah. speaks truth to power. He wrote a piece for Gawker. Uh, he's at Vassar. Yeah. And it's basically about the power of a Vassar ID, a faculty ID or member of the community ID and how it's gotten him out of trouble with the cops. Has allowed him access and what an institutional hall pass can do within that institution and in the mainstream world by painting you as this kind of exception. Uh, but the challenges he feels around the power of that idea and how far its value really stretches for those who don't have it. And also the things that his students go through, yeah. all these episodes that he writes about that he has to bear witness to that are incensing just to read. I can't imagine, you know, living through that and, 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 and being there to see all what's going on around him and how things, even though he's a professor and whatnot, they haven't really changed much, right? Yeah. I think that is the way to do it, to always, always speak truth to power. Mm-hmm. He has a m- more space to breathe and to put his, his thoughts in context. But I don't know if you're really trying to go for tenure. Then again, I'm not a professor, yeah. but I don't know that I would even have a Twitter account. Yeah. You'd self-censor. I would right. self-censor. Until you got that paper. Though, <laughs> I'd be trying to make myself the female Kiese Lehman. This show brought to you by Kiese Lehman. He got some pushback for his Gawker essay, and then he also got some pushback from Vassar for something he posted on Facebook, I think, after Baltimore. And he said uh, about the Facebook thing, I think the Facebook thing actually probably closes the space between the teacher and student, and I'm not so sure that closed space is necessarily healthy. Yeah. Right. No, and they... it's the intellectual equivalent of the past for not drinking in public. Mm-hmm. It's, you know the vow you take when you join the clergy. My last thought on this is the standards are different. You know, the pressure that a professor of color faces in trying to seek tenure are so different. A female professor of color professor, even more. The numbers are devastating. I don't have the stats in front of me anymore, but a lot of our reading led us to that. And it's not just about the occasional flare-up. It's like how that flare-up can negatively affect your ability to do your work. What institutions will accept you? Do they want to be affiliated with a controversial person who has petitions against them for these statements that they've made in moments of heat, in moments of passion, in moments of deep social concern? It's all just, it's just a mess. And I think it's a, it's a fun mess to think about because social media is such a broad topic. And the idea of like how it plays out for a professor of color in a white institution, that was a new twist for me who's like very deeply immersed. I tweet all the time. Right. But I'm also not quite seeking the type of acceptance that these institutionalized people are, and that's a special road to navigate. So listen, listeners, we're all very curious, especially if you're in academia, how do you manage your statements in public social media? Have you faced a backlash? Do you censor yourself? Are you extra careful with the words that you choose? And if you are a student or an observer of these institutions and these people, how do you feel? Do you engage with them? Do they upset you? Do you think that they shouldn't be sharing some of the thoughts that they are and does it lower your faith in the whole enterprise of academia to see such strong personal views posted out there in informal settings? Again, showaboutrace.com. Email us, tweet us, Facebook us. Use the social media to talk about your feelings about social media. That's what I just asked you to do. Very meta. So coming up next, we're talking about American crime. But first, let's take a word from our sponsor. About Race is sponsored by MailChimp. More than 7 million businesses around the world use MailChimp to send email newsletters and deliver high fives. The people behind MailChimp admire the projects that spread creative empathy in the world and creative chaos on the web. MailChimp also distributes hats for cats and small dogs. More at MailChimp.com. MailChimp. Send better email. 
So, American Crime wrapped up. It was a limited series on ABC, a drama directly reflecting our society today and told in between the lines, which had me not watching the show, but experiencing it. So set in Modesto, California, but shot in Austin, Texas, the storyline follows a violent home invasion of a young married couple, the Skokies, that leaves Gwen in a coma and her husband, Matt, dead. The crime is committed by a supposed Latino, then a black American male, and the stage is set for us to follow the ripple effects this crime has on all the characters involved, all braided together into this oftentimes bleak and sometimes hopeful narrative. I don't know what I want to say. <laughs> oh, man. Okay, so wait a minute. So, Dude. Can, can I ask you a question? Yes. About the, the... Did you guys finish watching it? Or are you like oh, yeah. pretending? I, I'm, I'm caught up. We're, we're all done. No, I, I did a double watch last night, late into the night, to prepare for this. I watch a lot of television. I've watched a lot of shows that have to do with race. This show, first of all, just beautiful. If you just listened to the show and didn't watch it, it's a beautiful audio experience. The violins... The, the way they play sound, if you just watched it and didn't listen, the way it's shot, it's asynchronous. It's not just this linear thing. It's beautiful, long jumps, yeah. overlapping dialogue, which is one of my favorite things. But, but racially, I yeah. love that they, they get ugly. Mm-hmm. And from the pilot all the way through, nobody's a saint, nobody's a complete sinner, but they put thoughts out there that are very unpolitically correct. And you have Barb's character who is... Like, she Huffman. Puts, she puts definite articles in front of racial groups. <laughs> it was the blacks. You know, the Ill- illegal. Was he an illegal? And that's a thread that that's, becomes very important throughout the show. So the show exposes conversation and language, which happens, but it's rarely on screen. I had a hard time watching um, the show sitting down. Yeah. I paced sometimes. I didn't watch it. I experienced it. And it was really uncomfortable for me, but it was something that was so refreshing and so unexpected you know, on a, on a network like ABC. Yeah. What I loved is that I could tell that there was such a mutual respect going on behind and in front of the camera. Yeah. When you hear the writing you t- and you see the thread with the Gutierrez's and, and when they talk about being a Mexican-American versus mm-hmm. that kind of Mexican and where the, yeah. that was so nuanced that I can just tell that the people that were writing in the writer's room were bleeding on the page. It yeah. was amazing. I have a question for you. Shoot. Something you said really stuck out White people are very good at not being racist in very abstract ways, right? Right. So do you think that the white characters on the show lived up to that? Yeah. I think that they all came into it with, oh, we were raised to be good people. Mm -hmm. We're not racist. Except for the mother. She's, you know, a little more uh, to the extreme. But then they're confronted with race in a way that they've never had to deal with before. And then it's no longer abstract. And then they have to wrestle with real feelings. Uh, which is the way that most white people aren't. And what I thought was great about the show is it's it's the anti-crash. Mm-hmm. If everyone remembers the <laughs> yeah. terrible, terrible, terrible race movie made about everyone driving around in cars and not talking to each other. But you know, people keep know. on likening American crime to crash. It's the storyline of crash done properly in that their lives yeah. collide in a way because of a cataclysmic event, but it's done well instead of done poorly. You know, one of my favorite stories from my research is from Louisiana in the 1890s, the Separate Car Act, which led to Plessy versus Ferguson, which was the constitutional law that sanctified segregation in the Constitution. The origin of that law was that it got to committee in the Louisiana State Senate and it died. It was not going to pass okay. because the enlightened 
white people, relatively, quote unquote, just like, well, this is ridiculous. We don't need this law because we have these fine, esteemed Negro colleagues in our Senate, and this is barbaric, and this is rednecks, and we don't want to do this. But the president of the Senate had an anti-lottery bill that he wanted to pass because he was Mm. part of this moral majority. And the Negro caucus in the Senate went against him on it and voted against him on the bill. And he was like, you're daring to defy my authority as president of the Senate. So he was like, fuck you. So he went and got the separate car act out of committee, went around with the whip and got all the votes changed. And they passed a separate car act, not because they believed in in this racialized theory. It was like, fuck you if you're not going to go along with my play. And the motivation for sin and for doing bad is always the seven deadly sins. It's always pride, greed, envy, whatever these things. And then race infects the motivation and and it plays out in a racial way. And what I found was so great about this show is that all of the characters are driven by their insecurities, by a lack of human connection, a lack of love, and it plays out in a racial way. No one's sitting around scheming, let's get those yeah. black people. But you it's know subtle. It's, it's subtle. subtle. Like with the, with, the, with the Gutierrez character that you brought up, mm-hmm. in the first couple of episodes, he's sort of portrayed as this self-hating Mexican yeah. and, you know, he, he doesn't like illegals. But then as you learn as the show goes on, his real motivation is he lost his wife. He's terrified of losing his children, and he thinks of assimilation and respectability as the thing that will protect That's him. That's the safe That's zone. his motivation. Yeah, yeah. It's not that so he— it affects re- it, him personally. Right. Yeah. It's not that he's necessarily sitting around that he hates being Mexican. or you know, The race isn't the motivation. The protecting his kids is the motivation, and it plays out in a racial way. And that is so true for all of the characters in the show, and that's what this show does in a way that— I, I've never seen before. But you know, Felicity Huffman, who plays Barb Hanlon, mm-hmm. when she was talking to John Ridley about her character, even toward the end, she wasn't sure whether she was overtly racist. Yeah. So I didn't think she was overtly racist at all. I think she discovered that she was racist toward the end. Yeah. Right before that, they had that uh, scene where uh, they were marching. The show has, is the height of intersection because race isn't isolated. It's not just about that. It's also about broken family in, in the Hanlon family where you've got this deadbeat dad who just shows up, from her perspective especially. You've got the surviving brother who's carrying so much anger that the mom is oblivious to and has nothing to do with Matt, who's dead. This is just, it's Mark and mom, and they got some shit they got to handle. And she discovers her racism in such a, a nice way to me is that she's shocked by it. Yeah. It wasn't a person of color who revealed it to her. It was her son. Do you think I'm racist? And he pauses. She's like, oh, my God. Like, no, I'm your, I'm your mom. I love you. How does my progeny think of me as this evil, terrible label? Who am I? What have I done? And his relationship with his wife of color, and she checks him. Yeah. Why are you with me? Why are you that running? so profound. What do you come, the one thing I didn't like, and I would love your take on the, the, almost the final scene. Yes, yes, yes. The keys. yes. yes. Barb, you know, walks out. She oh, yeah. drops her keys. She breaks down. Yeah. Which I'm like, oh, she's feeling something, which is the loss of her ex-husband, her yes. husband, the loss of her sons, both, the loss of everything she's been fighting for. She had a mission. She gave up the mission, and she was left with nothing. She can't even g- grab her purse. And then Mark and his wife come over, and the wife basically, like, lectures her. Decide what kind of person you yeah. want to be, and we're going to have grandkids, and they deserve you, and... I'm like, no, I can tell you. I can tell you. No, look, I can. I can tell you the exact line because I wrote it down because it was the worst line in the entire series. She says to the mother, "You have to decide if you want to hate." Yeah, yeah, that was saccharine. This whole show was so good at 
at showing and not telling mm-hmm. the whole time. And I hate what I, I call them Terminator 2 moments. Yeah. At the end of Terminator 2, the movie's over, yeah. Terminator's dead, it's a great movie. And then Linda Hamilton comes over, the voiceover, and she says, maybe if a Terminator can learn the value of human life. <laughs> We can too. Yeah. It's like, really? Was that what the movie was about? I didn't. And, and that one line. Was, I can't remember what. what and in the said. in the podcast, the the official show podcast, yeah. John Ridley and the producer said specifically that they wrote that as a speechifying yeah. moment. And, I was and it was mad. like, I, and I was mad at them for that doing was, that. that. I was, listened to that on the way here, and I'm like, wait, that was on purpose. I read a few articles also about like what they want for next season and they were like well maybe we shouldn't have you know these rich white families these entitled families you know being in center but I'm like did people not listen to the fact that when Russ skipped out on Barb and the kids they were left in the projects yeah Right. To yeah. me, I was not. I was like, "Fucking drop the mic!" Yeah. And I was just like, I just walked out of the room. I couldn't watch. I couldn't. I just. I missed whatever happened right after that because mm-hmm. I just. It just floored me. There were so many subtleties that not even TV writers right could latch on to everything that was being said. All right. Speaking of subtlety and non-subtle things, the, the other thing that caught me, and I want to know what you two think of it. I did not buy that Timothy Hutton would go murder-suicide. I didn't think they brought his character to that point oh, realistically. No, I think oh, they I, did! I, I, I bought what they were selling. Yes. Because his arc to me was hopeless, lost man, Making shows it, up, yes. and has nothing, is pushed further down by this wife of his who was like, oh my God, I forgot who you were and how much you hated for a profession. And lets her drive. Like, he is weak, he mm-hmm. is disempowered, She's nailing the prosecutor. She's organizing rallies. She's aligning herself, accidentally or not, with like white supremacists. And he's a passenger. And she's clearly driving. And the moment she hands over the wheel, she's also changed him. And he's gotten more invested. And he's like, wait, I thought we were, I'm with you. I like, you, can, you sold me. We have to fight. We can't let them drag our son's name through the mud. And she gives up. And he's like, well, now I guess I have to lead this. And when his own son, who's also goes a bit too far in distancing himself from the family. Yeah. When, he, when he lectures his son, that's beautiful to me. He's like, you want to be better than me? You, you stay. Yeah. You don't be me. So yeah, I can talk to you about abandonment because I did it and I know what that feels like. You don't want to end up like this. So I feel like you know, Russ by the end is actually feeling himself a bit. And he has that tender moment where they touch hands and he thinks they're going to kiss. They don't. But you know he's like, I'm gonna get, I might even get back with this woman in some way and like have this family. It took a loss of a son to gain a family. Like, they didn't say that out loud, but that was right. the subtext. Yeah. And when he sees how broken she is, he also sees his hope explode. And the only thing she taught him how to do, which she's complained about their entire marriage, apparently, is fucking stay. Fight. Well, he's been a passenger for the entire yeah. marriage. Stand right? up and fight. So he, I, the way I see it, she dropped the flag. He picked it up and is racing toward the hilltop. And he has to complete the mission. She was so convinced that this black guy did it, so he's convinced as her proxy. The mm. moment that she gave him the gun, I knew how it was going to end. Mm. I knew that Elvis Nolasco's character, big up to my Dominican brother, was going to get out, and I knew that he was going to kill him, and he was wow. going to kill himself because he's like, yo, man, there's nothing else I can do to make this thing right. Yeah. I just fucked this up totally. It's just time to go. I'm at the nadir of my fucking yeah. life. So Good I did word. buy it. No one ever uses that word out loud. Thank you, nadir. I just thought his weakness and his sort of pied hope, I just didn't buy it. Yeah. I didn't think he was that much of a, of a creature of agency. Mm. And when, then when he did it, I was like, it just felt like they needed that plot point to happen. Can, a little bit. I, I mean, otherwise the show is great. I hear you. The thing that totally made sense to me at the end, 
and that I thought was really amazing was Caitlin Gerard, her character, you know, her and Elvis and Lasko, they were a thing, they mm-hmm. were in love. She was obsessed with tearing out these posters. Yeah, yeah, with magazine ads. Magazine of ads couples, of interracial yeah. couples, specifically white women yeah. and black men being yeah. really happy. And I feel like it made sense toward the end when I, when, it was revealed that she was a foster kid, yeah. she had a lot of problems, and her um, adopted mother was like, I knew this was gonna happen. Mm-hmm. And I feel like then all of a sudden when she was hooking in the beginning for money, for yeah. crystal meth, all those guys were white. So for her, her brother, who yeah. she accused of sexual abuse is a white man, for her white men represented violence mm. and, and, and victimization. And she went for a savior. And she went for a, a savior in the savior. black, yeah. yeah. So mm-hmm. I thought that was so, clever that I can't even talk about this anymore because my skin yeah. was are, like, I'm just like, the goosebumps. We, I have goosebumps. Yeah. It was just amazing the way they, and Richard Cabrera's character at the Yo, end, the final t- thing. Can you get like a Tony for a TV show? I feel like they, they should give out Tonys it, and Oscars for television. And when I saw him, I, I remember telling my husband, like, I know this guy was a real gang member, yeah. probably went through, I mean, because I'm just saying this because he's on the West Coast, Homeboy Industries. Then when I heard it on the podcast yeah. that he went through Homeboy Industries and he was an original gang member, not one of those models that, you know, they, they have these like underground street fights mm. in boxing gyms, right? Okay. Where, you know, models want it that are very pretty, want to start to look, you know, kind of like oh, rough. Okay. And they make the, that transition into acting. But yeah. I can tell that his, he was feeling yeah. every single thing he said. Yeah. That was just that was just killing me it's sad that they're going to cast it recast the whole thing but it's an anthology series but and i'm right but i but i also like that because that, there's no this story's done it's a chapter i'm not ready next chapter <laughs> a disconnected chapter and the same way true detective is, is resetting the whole cast they got a, right. a general framework and principles and let's like tell a different story with different people i'd like to wrap this up by just uh applauding yeah. watch John the show Ridley, y'all richard cabral <laughs> elvis nolasco everybody in it caitlin gerard I mean, Felicity Huffman. I mean, oh God, I can't tell. I mean, I'm bowing to you. We loved it. We can't wait for next season. And we're really happy that uh, ABC made the commitment to redo this despite the less than stellar ratings. Now for the segment we like to call Yo, Check This Out, where we recommend things like books and movies and walks in the park and museum shows and whatnot that we'd like to share with you, our listeners. And uh, if you have any check this out that you want us to check out, write us on Facebook, tweet us, do whatever. Tanner, what are you checking out? Uh, what I've got this week, it's a little bit of an in-house promotion, but I started listening to it, and it's great. Slate Academy, for which you must be a Slate Plus member, I believe, is correct. Just started a new series, The History of American Slavery. It's hosted by Jamel Bowie and Rebecca Onion. I've only listened to one episode so far, but it's fantastic. And the basic premise of the series is that when we think of slavery, we think of slavery right at that moment, right before the Civil War, when the plantation and King Cotton was at its height. But the whole history of American slavery is a fascinating, evolving, changing process. And to really understand the whole thing, you have to go back to the beginning. So that's what they're doing. It's great education, and it's a good excuse to join Slate Plus, which you should do anyway. And you can also read excerpts and some of the source material for free at Slate.com, and that is uh, free without a membership. And Baratunde, what are you checking out? I am going to recommend a book. We've been talking about American crime and boxes versus Venn diagrams. I'd like to recommend a book called The True American. It's by Anand Girdardas, who, disclosure, is a friend. It's a beautiful book about a terrible incident. Right after 9-11, 2001, a white man named Mark Stroman went around to gas stations and bodegas in Texas shooting South Asian men who he thought were Arab. 
and this was his revenge for them taking down the towers. Two of those men died. One actually survived, a man named Race Bhutan. Race survived, and not only did he make it through the severe injuries, the bad health care, he befriended Mark Stroman, who ended up on death row. He lobbied to get this man off of death row, citing Sharia law and the act of mercy that Islam offers to its followers. And the story tracks both of these men's lives, uh, the life of a Southern man in and out of jail, fatherless, drugs, biker gangs, and ultimately violence in death row, and the life of an immigrant who came here from Bangladesh, was in the Air Force, chose a better life in America, New York to Texas to the Minimart to IT, and who of them has the stronger claim on what it means to be American, the native-born or the chosen one? And their own relationship, and as that evolves, is a beautiful act that you know, maybe won't need to happen if programs like what is going on at Fieldston, the Lower Academy, still take place. So Google it. It's in all the formats on all the platforms. The True American. Great book. He's up for a book award next week, so that put it back in my head. I hope he gets it, but even if not, I hope you get it. Wow. I definitely want to read that. Got to check that out. Wow. <laughs> Talking about non-binary yeah. and complicated. That yeah. sounds amazing. So my daughter put me on to this new artist that I'm like totally crazy about. Her name is Kali Uchis, and she has an album that she just dropped in February called Por Vida. It's an EP, and it features Tyler, the creator, and she is a Colombian singer by way of Virginia. And her music sounds really cool. It's nice because like there's no way to categorize it. It's just category bending. And since I can't categorize her, here's a little taste of what she sounds like. One door open when another door closed. I'm praying that's the way that it goes. Cause right when I'm about to turn the door now. It seems all locked up and the key decomposed. Remind me this is the life that I chose. Go full speed. I can't read the signs that say stop. Okay, her name again is Kali Uchis, a Colombian singer by way of Virginia. Check it out. Our producer today is Laura Mayer. Our research assistant and tech maven is Cody Carvel. Thanks also to Andy Bowers at Panoply. You can see its entire roster of captivating, compulsively listenable podcasts at iTunes.com forward slash Panoply. You can find links to the things we've discussed today on our website, showaboutrace.com. You can follow along with the conversation or join it yourself at facebook.com forward slash showaboutrace and or on Twitter at showaboutrace. Or you can email us directly at showaboutrace at gmail.com. And check back in two weeks for the B-side of today's episode to hear your thoughts on these topics. And that's it for now. Thank you so much for joining our national conversation about conversations about race. For Baratunde Thurston and Tanner Colby, I'm Raquel Cepeda. And we won't stop until racism is over.